You are listening to the Great Commission Leadership Podcast, a podcast that encourages leaders pursuing the Great Commission. Well, this is the Great Commission Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Withers. Thank you so much for listening today. Great Commission Leadership is a podcast that brings on amazing ministry leaders every week and highlights how they are fulfilling the Great Commission in their unique context. And today's guest is Nathan Rose. He's the senior pastor of Liberty Baptist Church in Liberty, Missouri. Nathan, thanks so much for coming on today. I appreciate you having me on, Graham. Nathan, I'm excited to talk about a variety of different things, but let's just get started by just kind of walking through uh, who you are and and how you've gotten into the ministry you're in today. Yeah, great question. So first and foremost, I am a follower of Jesus. You know, I'm uh, I'm twice born. I was regenerated at the age of 22. That's when I was converted. So I grew up kind of going to church as a kid understood the gospel, believed sort of mentally that Jesus had, you know, died on the cross, rose from the grave, considered myself to be a Christian. Um, but in, in high school and, and especially in college, really just pursued my, my sin uh, blatantly. So I was, you know, I did well academically, but in terms of, uh, yeah, just the party scene, yeah, that was me. I was like Joe College. And, um, and basically what the Lord did was, he showed me a few things. He showed me one that I'm a very crummy Lord of my own life. And so when I'm in charge, things go astray. And, uh, and also just allowed me to experience just, you know, sin is so dissatisfying. It's fun in the moment, but ultimately it leaves you dissatisfied. Mm. And so the last couple of years of college really began to experience the effects of pursuing my own sin. And so at 22, I feel like, uh, yeah, that's, that's when I was genuinely converted. So the Lord yeah, helped reveal the, the seriousness of my sin and helped me to see the beauty of His Son, my Savior. And so that's when I genuinely repented, turned from my sin, turned from myself, turned and trusted and followed Jesus. And so I was like a radically different person. People thought I, people thought I was crazy, right? I mean, that's just sometimes what happens when you're converted, you become... Right. You know, I was, I was a new creation. I was a new person. And so uh, I didn't want to party anymore. I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to evangelize. I wanted to talk in fellowship of Christians. I wanted to go to church on Sunday. And, um, and so I graduated and then uh, didn't really have a whole lot of plans. So I decided to attend seminary. I wouldn't recommend people doing it the way that I did. I, I wouldn't say I felt like I, I was interested in ministry. At that point, I wouldn't say I was like officially called, but so I started to attend uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, mm-hmm. and it was there where my call to ministry was really confirmed through serving in a local church. So I had that desire to be a pastor. Um, my local church affirmed that uh, desire and said, you know, you meet the qualifications, you have um, the, the ability to teach. And so that's where I met my wife also, Rachel. We've been married for 13 years. And so I graduated in 2009 and uh, was serving at a church in Leavenworth, Kansas, was there part-time as, as an associate pastor for about four years, a little over four years, and then was called to serve here at Liberty Baptist Church in Liberty, Missouri, which is a, a pretty big suburb right outside of Kansas City. Hmm. So, uh, Nathan, when I was, uh, we were talking earlier, um, <clears throat> what the, the way that I found out about Liberty and, and your role there and all that God's been doing was from a book uh, called Reclaiming Glory. It's by 
uh, Mark Clifton. He's with the North American Mission Board. Uh, if you're listening to this, you're not familiar with uh, Mark or this book, I'd really commend it to you. I'm going to include that in the, in the show notes for you to take a look at. But uh, this book is all about uh, revitalizing dying churches. And so we've talked a little bit about that um, in the past uh, with some episodes with uh, Sam Rayner um, and some others as well. Um, but I loved hearing um, and, and being able to read uh, the story um, of Liberty Baptist. So Nathan's story is included in this book. And so, Nathan, I just want to hear a little bit about uh, what it was like to walk in uh, Liberty Baptist a few years ago, kind of set the scene, uh, what was going on, and maybe even some of what your like initial priorities were um, coming into it. Yeah, so I have been here for eight years a little over eight years, and God has been incredibly kind and gracious to me and to our church. When I came in, it was a great church full of great people. They just, however, they were just maybe sort of, the way that I've explained it is they were kind of stuck in a time warp, right? Churches do this Mm -hmm. for some reason. I don't don't know what happens. I don't know if it's the glory days, but it it was almost as if someone had preserved our church from like, the 60s or 70s and it was yeah. like well now we're in the 21st century and so um so so a few things have changed and so uh yeah a great church small church i would describe so we are in a giant suburb and it felt like a very small rural church and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with rural church except when you're in a suburban context you know ministry is going to look a little bit different and so yeah. you know what i resolved to do was you know i didn't have aspirations to like grow a church or to make a church like a giant church i was just like look here's the thing people people including christians need to know jesus and they need to know about his his life his his substitutionary death his resurrection and so my goal was just i'm going to be committed to the gospel that is our first and foremost priority both christians and non-christians need the gospel uh, Charles Spurgeon has a quote that says, there's nothing, there's nothing that puts life into men like a dying Savior. And mm. so the very first step in revitalizing any church, or just even pastoring a church, or planning a church, is just to be forthright in proclaiming the, the substitutionary death of Jesus. So that was like my number one commitment, to say every Sunday we're going to be reminded of the gospel, we're going to hear God's word. Um, and so I was just committed to preaching, um, was committed to... Uh, to discipleship and was committed to primarily to establishing a biblical ecclesiology, hmm. so biblical polity. That was, I think, I would attribute most of our quote-unquote success, for lack of a better word, maybe fruitfulness would be better, to the fact that we took our polity seriously. So when I came, um, you know, I was very adamant, guys, we have to take membership seriously because the Bible takes membership seriously. And so we began to, we, we had a a list of maybe 450 inactive members. You know, there's only 120 mm-hmm. individuals worshiping on a Sunday morning, but yeah. you know, there was, you know, this giant inactive members, which, which again, some people see that as an administrative detail. I see that as these are people who think they're Christians that aren't doing the number one basic primary duty of a Christian, which is to worship the God they claim who has saved them. And so we began to reach out to these members um, and just encourage them to reconnect. And then eventually, basically, it was a very long process, almost two years, uh, we, we, we removed them. Basically, we, we did church discipline and, and, and removed them as members and no longer recognized them as members um, because they weren't living as Christians do, which is living in a community of Christians and worshiping you know, Jesus together. 
And so, so we did that. We, we established sort of some boundaries on how do you become a member? You know, it was, it was kind of that typical, Oh, I just walked down the aisle on a Sunday afternoon, right after church, I raised my hand, we vote there. And so we, we did away with that practice, took membership more seriously. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things that we did, you know, just basic, simple things like update the website. Um, but, but yeah, I would say primarily the big things that we did, Dram, was we, we focused on the gospel, making that first and foremost and central, and then took uh, polity serious. Yeah. So those in the book, it talks about how you focused on uh, what Clifton talks about is like low-hanging fruit. So like what you just said with yeah. like the website, that seems to be low-hanging fruit. Uh, changing church membership is not as much low-hanging fruit. So there, there had to be some other steps to get to that point. So maybe, what were, maybe think about what were, what were some of the other things, and uh, all for the point of like establishing some early uh, trust, I guess, and momentum with your people. But maybe talk through some of those other early days of like what were what were some of your uh, your main focuses in terms of grabbing some low-hanging fruit. Yeah, other than the website, I can't really think of any really low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, what I would encourage men pursuing, you know, ministry in a revitalization context, you, mean, you mentioned the word trust. And Graham, there's only one way to build trust, and it just takes time. Mm. You cannot speed that process up. You can have the title. You can have the position. You can They can call you preacher or whatnot, but until you've been there long enough and they— and they trust you, it's so difficult to, to make decisions that are really going to impact the life of the church. So yeah, there are small, you know, low hanging fruit. There are small changes that you can make Um, outside of the website. I can't really think of any that, that actually contributed to anything. I mean, you got to have a website, right? This is how people, you know, find out if they're, (laughs) what church they're going to, you know, an updated website. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I would just say like the big thing is to go incredibly, um, slow and to realize that moving slow on an issue is not the same as compromising. I think some guys think that if they don't make changes immediately, they're somehow like compromising the gospel Mm. or, you know, something else. But I would just say, look, if you make changes too quickly, they'll get rid of you. And then the next guy is going to be that much more difficult for him to come in and make changes. Yeah. So, so move slow. So maybe the low hanging fruit is just preach good sermons and minister to and love people. Maybe one that I'm thinking of is we just made, my wife and I were just very intentional about having members over to our homes mm. to, to ask questions primarily about um, the church and getting to know those members. So you know, I tried to be very intentional about not coming in with this attitude of like, I'm the church's savior, right? The church only ha- already has a savior, and it's certainly not me. I, I came in try to have a posture of learning, a posture of humility, asking a lot of questions, learning about the history of the church. People see that, and that's a way to earn trust. And so that th- those are maybe just some, some things that, you know, pastors could do in terms of, you know, achieving that low-hanging fruit. That's great. So as you saw uh, God begin to build up the church and reach reaching some younger people, younger families, um, what were maybe some of the ways that you sought to keep unity between the new people that were starting to show up early on mm. and some of the people that have been around for probably longer than maybe you'd been alive at that point, right? 
Like what were some of the ways that you sought to keep unity? Yeah, I encouraged members, especially our newer members to do exactly what I had already been doing to just say, Hey, you know, let's, we're not trying to quote unquote, take over a church. I hate that language. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, we're a family, we're a church family. These are, these are your family members. And what do you do with family members? Well, you get to know them, you hang out with them, you share a meal with them, right? You do what you see in the Bible. And so just encouraging, um, our newer members to, to one, to, to take the initiative to, you know, invite people out for a meal. Um, you know, I would encourage the older members to do it too, but, but I also just wanted to encourage our younger members to, to invest in our, uh, in our older members. And then just to, uh, encourage everyone to, you know, let's, let's be Christians here. Let's not insist on having our own way, right? Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking first Corinthians 13. Well, like what we want to do rather is to um, make sure that we, we care more about what other people think or care more about others than we do about kind of getting our own way. So, so both just in terms of thinking about, okay, this is how we're going to do ministry. This is what our music is going to look like. This is what our Sunday morning is going to look like. So just encouraging our younger members, like if they don't like the older songs that we sing we can just say well okay that's fine that you don't like them they're theologically sound and guess what but guess what our older members enjoy them um and then even saying the same thing with to our older members i get it you may not know this song it's a newer song but but really it's not about you is it it's about serving and loving those uh you know those outside of you and so Hmm. just again trying to pastor people i've I've heard someone say that replanting a church or revitalizing church there's there's another word for it it's just called pastoring people just being a good (laughs) pastor and trying to disciple people and help them to see like yeah it's not about you it's about loving god it's about loving your members it's about loving the world um so yeah those are just some things that that i tried to you know put into place and, and try to foster that that unity um and then just reminding people that ultimately our unity is found in christ and uh yeah that's that's ultimately what we're we're aiming for yeah well that's great nathan so one last kind of thing just asking about your church then we can kind of move on to to talking about what it's like today um i know that in most if not all uh, revitalization efforts and really just in leadership in general uh one of the elements that has to be dealt with is just the aspect of of criticism and dealing with pushback from people um and especially with a revitalization effort because uh, so many people, uh, you know, change is just hard for so many people. Um, if you had to kind of give some encouragement to a pastor out there, who's maybe walking through a season of, of discouragement of, uh, see, you know, receiving a bunch of criticism right now, what, what are maybe one or two things that you might just encourage them with? Yeah. Maybe the first thing is not knowing the individual, just making sure that I mean, honestly, the criticism might be legit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I talk to a lot of, especially young guys, and I, I, I mean, I'm 37, so maybe I'm not young anymore, but I was young. I was 28 when I came to the church. Mm-hmm. A lot of young guys make a lot of foolish, crazy, fast decisions. And then, or, or they're unkind or ungracious, and then they turn around and just say, you know, like, man, look at all this persecution. And it's, right. uh, it's like, actually, you might, it, it might be in your approach to people. So, mm. so again, there is such a thing as unjust criticism, but it might be 
uh, it might be actually needed. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said anytime someone made some sort of accusation or provided some sort of criticism, he tried to always find the truth in it, you know, and then sort of learn from that. So, so that would be the first thing. The, the second thing that I would say is like, let's say it's, it's, it's unjust criticism, because let's just be honest, Graham, if you're going to lead and you're going to make decisions, you are going to get criticized. I mean, that is probably, I, I know one of the questions you wanted to ask me was a leadership lesson that I've learned. And it is just like, it doesn't matter what you do. Some people are just going to oppose you. Hmm. Maybe it's not the same people, but like, you're going to draw the line in the sand and say, no, we're doing it this way. And people aren't going to like that. And at the end of the day, you have to just be one, trust your, that your identity is found in Jesus and not in how well your church does or whether or not people like you. Because if you try to, if you try to pursue that, that route of like trying to get people to like you, you will not last. I mean, it didn't, it didn't work for King Saul and it certainly doesn't work for us. So we have to make sure that our identity is found in Jesus. But, but then secondly, we just have to remember that ultimately who we're pastoring for is, is for Jesus. We're doing this in light of the one day where he comes back and he's going to judge us. So we, we recently, we went through kind of a difficult season there were some transitions that had to be made we had to make some very difficult decisions as pastors and the one thing that got me through was another one of our pastors just reminding me that nathan one day jesus is going to return and he is going to judge us in light of this decision hmm. and so all all we could do was basically sort of turn off i mean i want to be careful in how i say this turn off the criticisms and complaints of people. You don't do that entirely, but, but you do sort of want to make sure that those are being drowned out by this reality that no, like you are going, I'm going to be judged based on how I shepherded these mm. people and based on these decisions. That, and, and that's way more terrifying than whether or not, you know, 10 people in your church don't like you or five people in your church or a family decides to leave. Mm. You have to make decisions based in light of that day, that day of judgment. And so, so those two things, like, no, no matter what I do, Jesus still loves me. I'm still safe and secure with him. And then ultimately he is my judge and no one else. Those two things are like very helpful for me. Yeah. And well, so I think they could be helpful for others. No, that's extremely helpful, Nathan. Thank you. Cause that's just good perspective. Cause I think it's, uh, you know, it's easy to, to get bogged down with a negative, but just to give a, a positive encouragement to keep pressing and to it all depends on where our identity is found. So I love that, man. Um, so when you think about your church now, um, maybe talk a little bit about what, uh, the great commission looks like in your church. What does it look like for, uh, your church to, to think and reach outwardly? Cause you know, they say that's one of the, the key factors, um, in turning a church around is just to helping people understand and, uh, the lostness of their community and, the, the urgency of the gospel to go forth, um, but also, you know, what it looks like for, for disciples to be made and disciples to grow. So just give us a little bit of a glimpse into what that looks like for you guys now. I think that our church is like any other church, and we would we would freely admit that we don't um, evangelize as much as we would like to. And yeah. so I feel like as a leader, that's the constant struggle that's the constant rub. But we have a few ways that we try to be really intentional. Some of them are okay ideas. Some of them have been helpful. Some of them have not. 
Um, but I think it all begins with the preaching. So I, re- I recognize that one of my main contributions to the Great Commission is to remind people of the gospel and then to remind Christians that we have an obligation um, to our Lord Jesus to take the gospel to our nation, uh, to the nations and to our neighbors. So we cannot neglect that. We cannot just be in our holy huddle. And so that begins with me just trying to think through every single sermon and how can I try to encourage our people and, and continually put the mission in front of them. We, we sort of have adopt, adopted a mantra. I don't know if you call it our purpose statement or what, but one of the things that we have been saying is we are one family on one mission. And so we're trying to cultivate a very familial feel because that's what we are as a church. We're not a business. We're, we're a fellowship of believers. We're a family. But we're not just stuck in a holy huddle because we are a family with a mission. So we just, even in our, even in our statement, that's what we say. We're a, one family on one mission. And so that begins with, it begins with me. It begins with preaching, um, calling people to, to go to the nations, calling people to look for opportunities to share the gospel with their neighbors. And then we do it in various ways. So we, we have equipping groups on Sunday morning. Basically, well, we don't right now because of you know COVID, but sure. <laughs> uh, previously we did, yeah. and these were basically Sunday schools and so uh, Sunday school class. But in these equipment groups, we would intentionally set aside some some time, some uh, some classes to equip people for yeah evangelism with your neighbors, with your coworkers, and so we're just like not only holding people accountable, encouraging them to, but also equipping them to do so. We recently did a thing we called missional community groups where we had um, different community groups focus on different components of mission. So we had some groups focused on praying for missions. And so when they would gather together on Wednesday evenings, they would pray. Uh, We had another group that was focused on uh, service. So basically how do we tangibly love our neighbors um, just with with ultimately with the aim of trying to share the gospel with them. And so just like, you know, caring for, we, we, we partner with a school down the street and trying to provide for them. Uh, but then we also had people who were, you know, in those community groups who were dedicated specifically to evangelism. So we would go out and we would, we would have, we would conduct religious surveys looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Um, and then, and then we just encourage people on an individual basis, just that, you know, to, you should be sharing the gospel. If you don't know how, let us, let us help you take mm-hmm. this equipping group, you know, partner with someone who's done it. Um, and so we see that primarily not as a program driven thing, but, but ultimately we want it to be organic. Yeah. So I don't know if you have follow up questions, but those are just some of the ways that, that we've been doing it. That's fantastic. So thinking about discipleship too, uh, the overflow of, of evangelism in many ways, um, you guys have a statement where like you talk about, uh, you're, ex- you exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus and you do that by living in light of the gospel through worship, community, and mission. So maybe just unpack a little bit about what that looks like on a practical level and as you disciple your people to be on mission. Yeah, so we encourage every Christian or every member, we would encourage every Christian too, like your number one ministry and your number one means of becoming more mature as a follower of Christ is to participate in worship with your church family. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you have anyone listening who's not a part of a a church, a healthy local church, but if you are not regularly assembling with a local church where the gospel is preached, where, you know, 
songs about Jesus are being sung and the ordinances are, are, aren't being practiced, if you're not a part of a church that's doing that, like you are missing out on God's mm-hmm. primary means of discipleship, right? The, the local church and primarily the, the gathered worship on Sunday morning is God's plan A for every Christian's discipleship. So we just try to stress that as much as we can and say, this is, this is how we biblically make disciples. You can make a disciple in a coffee shop. There's nothing wrong with sitting across from another brother or sister with a book and a cup of coffee. But that's like you don't see that in the Bible. What you see is brothers and sisters gathering together to worship King Jesus, celebrating the ordinances, rehearsing the gospel. And so we just encourage people like that. Like you have to be there. That's what it means to be a member. That's what it means to be a Christian. But then we do it in various other ways. You know, we want to try to encourage it through community groups. We want to encourage it through just organic ways where you're meeting with people. Right now, I'm, there's a gentleman, a member, and he is, um, you know, he lives in my neighborhood. And we go on, you know, maybe three or four times a, a, an evening, or excuse me, three or four times a week in the evening. We just go on a walk for like 45 minutes, and we just talk about life. Um, that's, a, that's a means of discipleship, just sort of doing ordinary things with other believers and taking advantage of those opportunities to share life and to counsel and to instruct. So again, we try to kind of shift away from highly programmatic attempts to, uh, for discipleship and evangelism. And we just really try to put the onus on our members and encourage them and equip them to do what we see in the Bible. Well, that's good, man. So when you think about uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit towards leadership, um, you mentioned earlier just kind of one of the biggest lessons that you've learned in regards to your own leadership is just through like the personal experience of, uh, of dealing with criticism and just really the, the personal experience of leading. Um, any other lessons that you've learned that might be beneficial or maybe some, some things that you've learned from, from other people and mentors, anything like that, that we could benefit from? Uh, yeah, I... There's a lot. One would say, especially in like in a revitalization context, I would say that do not underestimate how difficult change is for people. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we can get frustrated that people aren't as excited about a certain change as us, and we just need to be gracious and patient and loving and kind with them just because they're not on the same page as us. So, so yeah, just don't, and don't underestimate it and, and to think that, that making a decision that's going to affect change isn't going to be that big of a deal. It always affects change. I, I use the, the analogy, it's not original to me, but you, you have pastoral capital. So if you think of a banking account, right, we talked about earning trust earlier. When you, when you do yeah. things that are helpful, like good preaching and ministering to people, and you know the church is doing well then you then you put you know quote unquote capital in that account that's pastoral capital but every single time you make a decision great or small you you lose a little bit of that capital now you might earn it back later if if it turns out it was a good decision and people see that mm-hmm. but ultimately you got to make sure that you have capital in the bank because what happens is if you keep withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing and eventually you don't have any capital and now you're, you know, now you're in the negative, mm-hmm. yeah, you're going to go bankrupt and you're going to, you know, you're going to lose your position. And so uh, it's just, it's, it's difficult to know how much each decision, how much capital is going to cost you. 
But that is where wisdom comes in, where prayer comes in, where discussion comes in on the front end before you make the change to determine how much this particular decision is going to, you know, going to affect you. And so I would sure. just en- encourage you guys to be, you know, to, to move slowly. Um, to, that, that would be sort of the big leadership lesson that I would encourage them in. That's great. So if you had a young guy, I mean, I'm, I'm 28, I'm coming to you asking just what does it look like for me uh, to grow as a leader? I know there's so many different things that you could say, but, but maybe just kind of synthesizing just some, some of the things that maybe we've talked about, maybe just some other learning experiences that you've had. What are, what's maybe one or two things you might tell somebody like me coming to you asking, what does it look like for me to grow as a leader, to grow as a pastor? Yeah. So, I have more than a couple of things, so sorry, Graham. I'm gonna let, let him go, man. That's great. I love on it. On a tangent here, uh, the first thing I would just say is like, you need to be spending time alone with Jesus mm-hmm. and His Word and prayer. I know everyone's like, yes, but no, seriously, like the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. I tell I tell guys this all the time before they get married. You know, they come to me. They're like, hey, I see this girl. I want to get engaged. I want to marry her. And I, my first question is, how well are you doing leading yourself? because if you're a guy, it's not whether you're a good leader or a bad leader, or excuse me, it's not whether you're a leader or not. It's whether you're a good leader or a bad leader. Like every, you are leading. You you can't not lead if you're a man. And so you're going to lead in some way, shape or form. The question is, are you doing that well, or are you doing that poorly? And so, so you have to learn to lead yourself well, which begins by, you know, spiritual disciplines, leading yourself spiritually. If you can't lead yourself spiritually, there's no way you're going to be able to lead anyone, anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also just encourage you, um, you know, to, if, if you're married, like that is your, your number one ministry. You know, there's, there's a reason, Graham, why if you look at the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy 3, right, he has to manage his own household well. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Paul says, look, if he can't take care of his own family— well, then he, there's no way he's going to be able to take care of God's family, the church. Yeah. And so to see your family, not just as a sort of proving ground, but it is like if you can't lead your wife and your children in, in devotions and in spiritual conversations, then then you have no business, you know, leading a church. And so mm-hmm. um, the other thing that I would just say is everyone wants a title, Graham. Everyone wants a title. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, who it doesn't matter like when we're looking for elders we aren't looking for the guys who want a title what we say is we're just trying to discover elders that the lord's already given us who are the guys who are already eldering who are the guys who are already shepherding people whether their people's eyes are on them or not and so just like taking advantage of that uh opportunity like if you're a church member you're not a pastor but you can pastor other people and you should be and so just, you know, whatever domain the Lord has given you, whatever ministry, no matter what size, whether it has a title or not, just minister to people, be an encourager. Um, I tell guys we're next to a seminary. I don't know if you knew that, but one of the things that I say to, uh, to you know, the seminary guys who, who come in, I, I say, look, I hope the Lord gives you a hundred members just like you when you get your own church. And then I let them determine whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. And so try to be, you know, try to be the kind of church member and uh, that, that you want your members to be. So mm. 
I have a few others. Um, I don't think people take care of themselves physically. I don't think, uh, especially, I feel like we've almost become Gnostic and like we're only focused on sort of our souls and not our bodies. So we don't take care of our bodies. We don't get enough sleep. We don't, we don't hydrate. We don't eat right. We don't exercise. And that has detrimental effects for, for leaders too. So mm. I could keep going, but your, your listeners have probably already tuned out. So, but those are just a few, <laughs> few lessons. No, man, that's, that's awesome. I appreciate your, your perspective there. And uh, just kind of, as we kind of wrap up, just thinking through maybe some books or resources that have been beneficial for you, impactful for you. Uh, what are, a, what are a few of those that you might share with us? So, I, you know, the, the other thing that I forgot to mention on the previous question was, right, leaders are readers. So yeah. I'm glad that you asked this. That's another thing. You have to be reading, not just your Bible, but you want to be reading other things. I mean, I would say I'm not really into, like, the leadership books. I don't have anything against them. I just have found that they're not always the most advantageous. Um, Al Mohler's book, The Conviction to Lead, is is really good. Um you know, anything related to, to nine marks, I think is going to be a helpful resource. Um, I, I, I focus primarily on reading books that are more related to, to, to either church polity or just that are beneficial to my soul. So, you know, like Desiring God, I read that years ago, excellent book, John Stott's The, the Cross of Christ. I tell every Christian, especially every minister, if you've not read The Cross of Christ, uh, you need to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, J.R. Packer recently passed away. So knowing God, just, you know, reading resources that are going to enrich your soul are actually going to make you a better leader. There are practical components that we need to know about. Absolutely. But like, just, you know, we minister out of the abundance of our relationship with the Lord and the joy that we have in him. And so if we're not cultivating that in ourselves, it's going to be really difficult to lead well. And so I would just encourage guys to read good Christian resources like that. Yeah. That's fantastic, Nathan. I'll include all those in the in the notes. But uh, man, just thank you so much for this. This is so encouraging for me. I know it's encouraging uh, for our listeners as well to hear all that God's done in 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 you and also in your church to see a church that um, is is flourishing um, and and pursuing the Great Commission. It's just encouraging. So thank you so much for your time, man. And uh, I know that I've benefited from this, and I know our listeners have as well. Thanks, Graham. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Great Commission Leadership Podcast. If this podcast has impacted you, please subscribe, share, and rate so that others can be impacted as well. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at GCLpod. Join us again next week for another episode of the Great Commission Leadership Podcast.